Hello, and welcome to Fly With Your Shadow, the podcast all about music, mental health and illness, and the mess that the COVID pandemic has made of it all. My name's Jeff Robson, and this show comes to you from my home in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I always love it when I hear a song that almost sounds like it was based on my own feelings and experiences. I often have a hard time putting those things into words, and occasionally a song seems to do it better than I ever could. Such was the case when I first heard the song Lay Low Shadow by this week's guest. My name is Shauna Caspi, and I'm a singer-songwriter based in Toronto. The song details Shauna Caspi's struggle with anxiety as it comes and goes throughout her life, and even when things seem to be going well, it lurks and lies in wait for its next opportunity to take over. It's a powerful piece of writing that really grabbed my attention immediately. The whole thing is really powerful and meaningful, but lines like, every time I trip up, that's your cue to reappear, and this powerful second verse. Sometimes you surprise me, drop by when I'm alone, holding up a coat that I could swear I'd outgrown. It wraps around my ribcage, every pocket's filled with stones, it's a brave, personal song that can only come from someone who's lived through a long struggle with anxiety. In spite of it, Shauna Caspi has built a successful career that includes four previous album releases and one upcoming one. That one's called Hurricane Coming, and it's where you'll find that song. Shauna Caspi has toured relentlessly, primarily in Eastern Canada and the United States. Her biography describes her as a singer, a poet, a painter, a fingerstyle guitar player, and explains, After touring her last album relentlessly, Shauna took a break to rest, reflect, and focus on songwriting. It was in those moments of stillness and solitude that she confronted her own experience of burnout, anxiety, and the struggle with self-worth. In working through the shadowy parts of herself, Shauna discovered more ways to practice gratitude and appreciate little victories. This process of slowing down and looking inward resulted in her most raw, honest, and personal writing. It goes on to say that she strives to tell the truth even when it's uncomfortable to empower listeners to come to terms with the parts themselves and the world that they might find scary and to look for hope in the dark. What more could you ask for from a songwriter? I know you'll enjoy getting to know Shauna Caspi along with me in this chat. This time I will do no harm I'm a straight shooter with a broken arm Got one eye closed, one eye blind Not out of sight or out of mind uh, For folks who are new to you, can you tell us a bit about, uh, you know, when you got started in this crazy mixed up music world and, and how long you've been at it, that kind of thing? I feel like it's always been there. I uh, grew up in Ottawa and when I was growing up there, I went to an arts high school and when I was in high school, I got really involved in the folk music scene in Ottawa, which uh, was really brilliant and bustling and we had all kinds of venues and we had the Ottawa Folklore Centre back then. And so I got really involved in the community, and then I moved to Toronto to go to university at York University, where I was studying music, and just really got into the Toronto music scene, and that's where I've been ever since. So even when I wasn't 
playing music, uh, I've always been involved in the arts community, so I've worked a lot of jobs in the arts, and, uh, and then for the past eight years or so, I've been doing music full-time. What made you want to get into music? Like, were you, were you in the music lessons as a kid, or did you have a Beatles on Ed Sullivan type moment where you decided this was for me? What, what was it that kind of hooked you in? It started probably from being in choirs. I was in a lot of choirs when I was a kid, and I loved singing. And that experience led me to going to this arts high school where I was studying vocal music. And then while I was in high school, I, I really got into singer-songwriters, which at the time, this was in the 90s, there was kind of that, that beginning to the Lilith Fair hype and all of these female singer-songwriters who were being suddenly played on the radio when they never had been before. And I was hearing women singing songs that they wrote and that they were performing in the mainstream music scene. And I just loved those songs. And so it was also when I first got the internet. So I had these artists that I loved and I wanted to find out more about them. So I went on the internet and I found all of these news groups and mailing lists and things like that. Uh, And back in the day, the, the message boards. And that's how fans would connect with each other. So I found myself connecting with all these other fans who loved the same music that I did. And they were introducing me to more music. So I was a really big Sarah McLaughlin fan when I was in high school. And I loved her songwriting. And so I met all these other fans. And then they introduced me to artists that were, at the time, independent artists in Canada. So people like M. Griner and Danny Michelle and Sarah Sleen people who weren't getting played on the radio, but who were just doing their own thing and, and making the kind of music that I realized I wanted to make too. Now, um, I'm trying to, trying to, you know, date things properly. I have so many musical friends, uh, in Ottawa. It seems like an amazing musical scene there. I guess, I guess, uh, Lynn Miles would have been around for sure at the time, but, uh, since then, well, you know, great friends here like Jim Bryson and, uh, Brock Zeman and Lynn Hansen and all, all kinds of great folks. So, uh, were you kind of contemporaries of any of those kind of people or? When I was living in Ottawa, I also worked at the local folk club. It was called Rasputin's, and sadly, is long gone. But I started going there a lot, and then when I started working there, I was there all the time. And so I saw pretty much every Ottawa folk person that there was come through that place. So Lynn Miles, for sure. I'm a huge Lynn Miles fan. Um, Ian Tamblin, Terry Tufts, and I know you, you had my friend David Francie on the radio recently, um, David played at Rasputin's, I think it was one of his first shows in Ontario and it was a two night event. And I remember going to both nights because I loved his music so much. So I, I was also working at a recording studio when I lived in Ottawa. So a lot of those same people were coming through that recording studio. And for me as a teenager, it was just like immersing myself in it. And I, I was so, so enamored by the music and by these people that I got to meet. And so did you have the confidence that you could kind of hold your own against these people or, 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 you know, like for, for me, when I see a great musician, it just makes me want to quit. Cause, cause I know I'm, I'm not that guy. Right. But do you have, do you have the confidence that, you know, you can, you can do something kind of like the people you're seeing even as a, as a kid? I mean, I think at the time I had the confidence of a teenager so just sort of, you know, not, not really realizing. Confidence or foolishness. We're not sure. <laughs> right. 
without really realizing the context that I was in. But I, I never thought that I would be able to do that for a living. And I remember going to the Ottawa Folk Festival at the time it used to be right at the end of the summer. And so I would go to the folk festival and have an amazing weekend and then go back to school the following week. And and one I found this old journal of mine where I wrote about the festival and in the journal entry I said something like, Man, like I have to go back to school and all of these other people that I just saw on stage just get to keep doing this all the time and, and how amazing would that be? So it was never something that I thought I would be able to do. But I was um I was studying classical music in school. So I I I at the time, I don't think I thought I was going to be a, a classical performer either, but I knew that that was where I was getting all of the training and the technique from. And I just assumed, you know, I, I would go on and, I don't know, work some job in an office and, and live my life. Like, I didn't think this was a possible life, and I did not understand how anyone did it. But I think because it happened to me so gradually, I was just kind of eased into it, where... I was working all of these arts administration jobs in my early 20s in Toronto, and I was meeting so many people in the scene and just, you know, everybody, because the independent music scene is so rich and it is possible to have a career without a record label and, you know, to do a lot of it on your own. That was a, a big learning experience where I would just kind of learn a little bit from everybody that I met. You know, I, I once sat down with, my friend Amy Campbell, who was a touring singer-songwriter at the time and now is, is my, my all-the-time graphic designer. Uh, but we were friends, and I just sat her down one time, and I was like, how do you go on tour? Because <laughs> I just couldn't understand how, how it all happened. And so she gave me a bunch of information, and, and I just started really small. I started playing a few shows locally and then expanded to further into Ontario and then just kind of kept expanding and expanding. And I was also working some day jobs at the time. And then I, I gradually decreased my time at my day jobs and increased my time on the road until finally I was just on the road all the time. Ottawa, like Winnipeg, it kind of, uh, it, it's nowhere. It's nothing like Toronto. We both have amazing music scenes, but there's kind of a, Certainly compared to Toronto, there's a bit of a small town vibe. It's, it's it's not the same thing. So jumping into the music scene in Toronto, was that intimidating for you? Was that kind of like scary at first being a part of the hustle and bustle of that community? I think it helped that I came to Toronto to go to school. And I it wasn't that I was coming to Toronto to make it in the music scene. I, I would definitely not encourage that, although some people do that very well. I don't think it would have gone well for me. Um, so it was kind of a buffer. So I went to school for four years and met all kinds of incredible artists and musicians at school and and the faculty who were teaching me as well. And so I think that helped kind of ease me into the Toronto scene. But when I was in university, I was playing uh, music with a couple of my roommates. And our very first gig in Toronto was at a place called the Free Times Cafe, which is still there. And we went to the open mic one night, and then they asked us to come back and play a little set. And that was, I think, the start of it. So I, I played just little Toronto clubs and connected with other musicians and just kind of built that that contact list and that community and it just got bigger and bigger. If we had seen you or heard your music 
you know, kind of when you started, what would the difference have been to, uh, if we, if we saw you or heard you today, do you think? (laughs) The difference would have been the songs that I played in the early days were very confusing. It took me a long time. I've, I've always loved playing with words. I love lyrics and I love poetry and, um, but I, I did not know anything about song structure. So my songs were all over the place and very complex and sometimes hard to follow. But, uh, but they, they kind of delighted me because I, I loved the, the lyrics and playing with words. And so I think I have a new record coming out that is definitely by far the most, uh, the most structured in terms of songwriting of any of the work I've ever done. And, and that's, been, that's just been happening more and more with, with each of my projects. But uh, I've always been really, really interested in the guitar. I was a classical guitar player for many years. So my guitar accompaniment is based in the fingerstyle, a kind of lyrical fingerstyle guitar style. And so that was the case back then as well. Um, but I think definitely the songs now have a lot more of a, a logical structure. So the the lyrics are still kind of, um, creative and, and a little bit unexpected perhaps, but the, the structure is now there. It's, it's so interesting, uh, seeing, you know, some early performers often, often we try to be, uh, a bit too smart, right? Like you, you go to, you go to university and you're, uh, you're, you're trying to write this, uh, this brilliant poetry or whatever. And then it's, uh, it's often not until much later that you kind of realize that the best songs seem the simplest. David Francie is such a great example to me of someone who just puts things so there's, there's no wasted words. There's no, you know, extra effort to do anything fancy. It's just straight to the heart songs. And it it often takes people a lot of time to learn that, you know, to, to learn, to try to say less. And sometimes that means more. Yeah. Simplifying the songs for sure. That's been a big difference for me. I would also say that my voice has changed a lot over the years especially because I trained for so long as a classical singer, that process of almost undoing that training and finding my, my true voice and my voice as a folk singer, that was a very long process and I think it's still going on. Every time I make a record, I wish I had sung it better, you know? And, and in this case, I think my voice on my new album is quite different and just gets closer and closer all the time to, to my natural, relaxed, true voice. So what was the process like for making your first record? Was that kind of a, an intimidating thing? Were you excited to do that? What, what was that like going into the studio and making that first record, uh, paint by numbers, I guess was the first one, right? Yeah, it was very intimidating because I've always kind of been nervous in the studio. I, I much prefer to be playing a live show but I also worked at a studio when I was in high school, and that made me even more scared, just because there, there seemed to be so much pressure when you're in the studio. But when I made my first album, I made it with my friend Dylan Bell, who's a fellow musician in Toronto, and he had a, a little home studio, and we had known each other for years, so we were good friends, and I felt comfortable with him. So it was, it was a good way to kind of um, go into a studio without the pressure of that kind of thousand dollar a day, huge professional studio. So it's a bit more relaxed 
but uh, still I found it pretty tough, but it was a, a really good, I think it was nice to work with Dylan as an entry point into making records because I just had no idea how anything went down and, and he helped with the arrangements and getting other musicians and, uh, and we had a lot of fun. You know, music kind of like, uh, like having a podcast, actually. Sometimes, you know, when we start these things, we, uh, we have expectations that they're going to do great things. And, and uh, a lot of people quit early on just because it turns out to be a little bit harder than they thought or the results aren't as immediate as they thought. Did you have any struggles like that where you thought, like, this record is great, people are going to love this, and then it didn't do what you expected? Or, or were you realistic from the start about building something? I'm I'm fairly pessimistic by nature, <laughs> uh, but I certainly I mean every time I made a record I had high hopes for it and certainly you know in terms of things like radio airplay or you know getting the kind of the gigs that I wanted to get at the time I, I would have described that as being disappointed because I didn't get everything I hoped for. But at the same time, I, I never really think anybody owes me anything, so it doesn't surprise me. And, I, and I'm, I'm very aware of the reality of things, so I, I know what the industry is like. I know what the world is like. Um, I also know that, you know, just because somebody says no, it doesn't mean it's because you're terrible <laughs> and all of those things. Uh, but it's hard. It's really, really hard to put yourself out there, uh, particularly when you're writing original music that is so close to the heart. and you know, getting a rejection feels very personal. Um, can you tell me about the the early songs? I know you said the structure was very different, but were you were you writing uh, kind of personal type songs in the beginning as well? Were they based on you and your life, or has that changed? They were, but I was always kind of masking that, and I think a lot of the growth that I've done as a songwriter has been about stripping away that uh, stripping away the walls that I've put up between me and the listener where you know I'm singing about something that's personal but I don't want to get too close so I would kind of mask it and and it's you know making music is about communication so the more that I can strip that away and be as vulnerable and as honest as I can the better it is and so I think the the more songs that I wrote, the closer I got to that. And I think the album that I'm that I'm releasing now is, is the most raw and honest work I've ever done. Initially though, do you think it was a fear of revealing yourself or was it like you you didn't think that songs that personal would relate to people? Or why do you think that you kind of masked that or put up those walls in the first place? I think fear had a lot to do with it just fear of people knowing me too well or, or sharing too much. And to some degree, uh, I thought that, that I was trying to get away from the kind of dear diary writing that was often attributed negatively to women, especially young female singer songwriters. And so I thought, well, if I write more in the folk tradition where I'm telling somebody else's story, that will be more mature or something like that. <laughs> um, but really, and then, you know what? I took, a, I took a songwriting class with Lynn Miles many years ago, one of the first songwriting workshops I'd ever signed up to do. And I was quite young and I was playing those songs. And it was Lynn who said to me, you know, start by writing what you know. 
And so it's always been that kind of process. And I think uh, as I get older, I become more comfortable with myself and more comfortable sharing more of myself. So starting off with those first couple of records, obviously you, you said that you started kind of touring simply and stuff. Have you always been a, a primarily solo performer? I know that's majority of what you do, but it, has that always been the case? Yes. And namely purely because of finances, it's just so much easier to, to tour as a solo artist and cheaper and you know it doesn't take as much work to try to organize rehearsals and people's schedules and all those things so uh it helped because i was already this fingerstyle guitarist and the accompaniment that i was playing with my own songs was fairly complex and could fill a room so i didn't need a band as much uh, i would i love playing with other people and i have played with a band before and if I could figure out how to do that in a viable way, I think I would do it more. But primarily, all of the music I've played as a singer-songwriter has been solo. Uh, it looks like most of your touring has been, you've done a lot in the States and a lot uh, in certain places in Canada. I mean, I don't know if you've ever even, have you ever been to Winnipeg? Have you ever played Winnipeg? You know, I haven't. I've gotten close. I've been in conversations at times with folks in Winnipeg, but somehow it hasn't worked out. Although I have played in the train station in Winnipeg because I've done the via rail trip across the country numerous times. And there's a stop. We stop for a few hours at the forks in Winnipeg and the musician will play in the train station for a little bit. Um, I, I love the music scene in Winnipeg and the talent there is exceptional and I would love to, to come there and play sometime. I think somehow it just was a, was a geographic thing where I would either get all the way to Thunder Bay and come back or I would fly to Alberta or something and then come back. <laughs> um, when I first started touring, I was only touring in Canada and Canada is a very difficult country to tour because of how spread out we are. And, uh, and so I think I was doing it and I, I loved it because I loved the people and the scenery, but viability wise, it was hard to make a living just touring in Canada. So I started going to the first conference I went to in the United States was a one called NERFA, which is the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, which at the time was being held in upstate New York. And I just went down kind of on a whim, you know, I was going to music conferences at the time and this one wasn't that far from Toronto. So I went down and that was where I first met uh, a lot of U.S. presenters and other folk artists in the United States. And we were all kind of clustered in this region that was quite easy to get to from Toronto because we're really very close to the border. The only issue is to tour in the United States. For me, I have to get a work visa, which is very complex and expensive and has made it tricky. But when I started getting shows in the United States and building that up, once I had the base, it was just something that I started doing more and more. And, and because the shows in the United States are usually a lot closer together than the ones in Canada, I just kept kind of hammering at that and expanding my, my market in the States. And I just end up ended up mostly touring there, but I would love to tour more in Canada if I could make the driving distances work and the the space between the shows work. 
Yeah. So you were, you were smart enough early, early on to realize that cause a lot of young performers, they just, they can't wait to throw the guitar in the back of the car and drive across Canada thinking it's going to be, they have this romantic notion of drive, you know, I'm going to drive to Vancouver and back and then <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Right. <laughs> like you were smart enough to know not to do that right away. It sounds like. Yeah. It, the very first big tour that I did was from Toronto to Thunder Bay and back which is already quite a drive and you're not even out of Ontario yet. I, I liked the idea of doing that cross country drive. And I think maybe if I owned a car, I would have done that a lot earlier, but I, I live in Toronto and I don't have a car. So, you know, to rent a car for that long is kind of crazy. But I think what also helped is I started this program with via rail quite early on as well. So I was, doing these train rides that, you know, if I was going out to the East coast, I would go from Montreal to Halifax on the train. And if I was going out West, I would go from Toronto out to Vancouver. So I was doing that, but on the train, which is quite lovely and, you know, doesn't involve these mind blowing or, or rather uh, mind crushing <laughs> drives for hours and hours. Um, and it was a free ride on the train. That, that's the deal. You play music for the passengers and you get a free ride. So I, I kind of just did a bunch of things all backwards and, and twisted around and managed to get away with playing shows across the country without actually having to do that, that huge drive. What's it like trying to break into the States? Is that intimidating? Do they welcome you pretty with open arms? Is it, is it hard to kind of be a Canadian breaking into uh into the States? Initially, it was pretty amazing because when I went down to that conference I mentioned, at the time, there were very few Canadian acts going down, and the ones that were were all amazing. So when I went down there and said, hey, I'm from Canada, I was immediately welcomed with open arms as though I was this exotic fruit, you know, coming from Canada. <laughs> And they were like, everyone we know from Canada is amazing. You must be amazing too. And so they were very, very kind to me. And I think also at the time I was in, in Canada, I was and particularly in Ontario, I was still really known for my arts administration work because I had done so much of it. And it was really hard at the time for me to, to split my identity with that community and try to say, Hey, no, I'm a performing artist. Like hire me for your festival as an artist <laughs> when they knew me as a, an administrator, but going to the state, nobody knew me prior to that. So when they met me, they were like, Oh, you're a singer songwriter. You're a touring singer songwriter. Great. <laughs> and that's how I wanted to be seen. So that really helped too. And, uh, and so I think there's a, there's a very strong folk scene in the United States that I think is initially rooted in the very kind of storytelling, acoustic, bard-like, you know, traveling troubadour that's, that's just quite popular there. And that's what I was doing at the time. So I, I fit in pretty well. And, and I just kept going to conferences and, and just kept building the, the people that I was meeting and, uh, and so, yeah, again, they, they really were warm and welcoming. 
Uh, one thing we talk a lot about on this show is kind of the, uh, <laughs> you know, when the world ended, when when COVID kind of shut down. Can you talk to me a bit about what you had planned at the beginning of last year, what, what it was supposed to look like and kind of when the wheels fell off? So I was on tour in March 2020 in the Northeast United States, and I had just finished pre-production on my album in Toronto. I was still working on the last song of the album. And I was supposed to go into the studio when I got back from that tour, which felt very rushed at the time, but it felt like, you know, we had to do this on a schedule. And so I was on the road and, you know, the story started to creep up about COVID while I was driving along in in Massachusetts. And while I was in the middle of that tour, everything kind of crashed down and the shows got canceled and I was in Rhode Island and I played my last show in Rhode Island and my all the rest of the shows have been canceled. So I thought, all right, well, I'm, I'm going to drive home tomorrow and then I can get a head start on that on those studio sessions that are coming up. And so I just drove kind of in a haze back to Toronto, got home. My fridge was empty because it always is when I go on, on the road. And I returned my rental car. You know, it's a, we were still kind of all thinking this is dumb and you know this is an overreaction and I I remember the moment where it all hit me because I returned this rental car and went to the grocery store as I've done kind of as a ritual every time I came back from the tour to go fill my fridge and I walked into this grocery store that I've been to a million times and the place was just empty like the the aisles were empty of food because people had cleaned it out in the all the panic buying and that was the, that was so chilling. And that was the moment for me. And so I went home and I'm thinking that I'm going to go and start recording this record. We were supposed to do bed tracks the following week. And the next day, there was a message from the government saying that if you have been in the United States recently, you had to self-isolate for 14 days. And so I, ha- I had to self-isolate with, you know, whatever I had in the house, because I wasn't prepared, of course, and, and all of those sessions had to be canceled. And I was just heartbroken. But I thought, okay, well, I'll do my, my two weeks quarantine, and then we'll go into the studio. <laughs> and then, of course, in that time, that's when everything shut down. So it was, it was really hard to, to have to put this album that I had been planning for so long on an indefinite hold because the plan for how we were going to make the album, and I had never done it this way before, was we were going to get me, my producer, who's playing a lot of the guitars, and the bass player and the drummer were all going to rehearse together and we were going to do the bed tracks by playing all together in a big studio. So it kind of would have that really great cohesive band sound. And that was the one thing we couldn't do because we couldn't get together and we couldn't go into a studio. And so we thought about doing it remotely where everyone could just do their own parts and send them in, which is how a lot of people were getting around this when they were making records during quarantine. But I really, really wanted to do this new thing that I hadn't done before. So we just waited it out and uh, and had to put the record on hold for many months until it was safe to do that. But it was it it was really hard for the first while to get all of the cancellation emails rolling in to the point where I started having email opening fear 
of dread because every email I opened was bad news. And I just didn't even want to hear those email notifications anymore because I knew that, you know, a great show that I was wanting to play was going to get canceled. So I did have some, some shows on, on the horizon, but the main thing that I was about to do that I couldn't do was making the record. And at that point, I mean, live performance, I'm guessing, was the bulk of your income. That's how you spent most of your time and made most of your money, right? So what was that What was that like losing that all of a sudden? And not just live performance, but the merch that got sold at live performance. Yeah, that together was really the bulk of my income. So live streams at the beginning were quite helpful, especially, you know, there was a couple that were sponsored by some big organizations where they were paying artists quite well to do live streams just to support us. And then, I mean, really the the government support was crucial. I don't know what I would have done without CERB and CRB from the government because there was really nothing else that we could do. And here in Toronto, since the start of the pandemic, we have been the, the city that's been on lockdown the hardest and the longest. And so without that, I, I can't even imagine what would have happened. So that was a huge help. Um, but I'm also a visual artist. And so I really started doing a lot more painting commissions. And and fans have been so generous and supportive. Like I've been, people have donated, people have ordered things from me, I think more than maybe they would have before. So I, I have been very supported by the community. A lot of people kind of have a hard time accepting that. I know there's a lot of stubborn artist friends of mine who are like, I don't want people to think I'm a charity. I don't want people to give me money and they don't, they don't want to push like buy stuff from me because I need the money kind of thing. Where, where did that kind of dilemma fit in with you? Were, were you more comfortable with that than, than some or, or how did that work? Oh, no. <laughs> no, I was very uncomfortable I'm very uncomfortable asking for help of any kind, let alone financial help. But I, I don't know if it's just the disaster aspect of it all and, and the emergency of it all, but I quickly just had to accept people's kindness because, and, and I've done the same to others, you know, where I, I, I would do the same. And especially the, the people who were really just, some people just donated just a, a bulk of money just as a donation, you know, without even asking for anything, they just wanted to support. And I realized that, you know, if somebody wants to, wants to support you, you should let them and, and they're doing it out of kindness. And so that was a lesson that I learned and, and it still occasionally happens where someone will just give me something. And I, I have learned to accept it with gratitude and grace. Yeah, I, I can't believe the. I mean, I know I'm the same way. So, so I, uh, you know, I, I should shut up and take my own advice. But, you know, I, I tell musicians this all the time, and then it applies to just about everybody. If, you know, if somebody wants to give you a gift, if somebody wants to help you out, you let them. <laughs> like, you, you, yeah. If somebody offers you money, you, you, you take it. Like, <laughs> you're just dumb yeah, not to. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, because, you know, we need that, and people do it because they love you and they, they want to help you, right? So. And that kind of helping each other out is the only way we can get through something as disastrous as this, right? And one of the great things about being forced to just stay home and and wait was that I had all of this time that would usually have been eaten up by either 
physically being on the road or doing all of the tedious work of booking and emails back and forth. I didn't have any of that. So I had all of this extra time that I hadn't had before to really connect with fans. So every time somebody sent me a donation or sent me a message or whatever, I could write them back, you know, with, with all this time on my hands. And that was really nice. Yeah. That's interesting. A lot of people are kind of hoping that maybe something good that might come out of this is a lot of the, a lot of the requests to play for free and a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, can you put me on the guest list and a lot of that stuff hopefully will go away and people will start seeing that we need to pay for these things and we need to start maybe even paying more for, for arts and stuff to support the people who haven't worked for so long. I hope that's true. I worry a lot that uh, people have very short memories and that, that, a lot of the world that we're hoping is going to change after all this is actually not because we're all creatures of habit and we're just going to fall back into our own habits. Yeah. It's hard, you know, because people the, the whole way along fans and, you know, consumers, whatever, we just want to get back to the way life was. But then there's a lot of us who see, you know, maybe we could possibly make a, make some changes to this. I know, I know Toronto, I, I think Toronto is, is, is a real, uh, pass the hat kind of a music community, right? Like there's a lot of those shows going on and a lot of people are saying, well, maybe this is the time when we cut that out. Yeah. I mean, I've never done any touring in Europe, but I'd love to someday. And I have heard from folks who go out there that it's really different because the culture is different and people value the arts in a different way. And I think we're not quite there yet. And I don't know what it is that we need to do. Tell me a bit about your, uh, your, your visual art. When did you start doing that? Was that, uh, was that after the kind of music or at the same time? And how does that creative process compare to writing songs? I started painting when I was in university. I took a painting class as part of my degree. And it was near the end of my degree. And I was told that I could take this painting class as a complete beginner. And that, you know, everything would start from the start. But in reality, everybody in this class were existing visual arts majors who all knew what they were doing. And I was so lost and so frustrated because I just couldn't do it. But I had a really great teacher who really taught me how to paint. And so I just practiced and practiced. And, and I, you know, I wasn't great or anything, but I, I learned the skills and I graduated from university and I folded up my little paint kit and put it away and thought I'd never do that again. Uh, even though it was enjoyable, it was just not something I was doing. And then after it actually was actually after that first big tour that I did, when I went to Thunder Bay and back, I had taken all of these photos of places in Canada that I'd never seen before that were so gorgeous. And I wanted to share them somehow. And I thought, well, I wonder if I still know how to paint. This was probably about seven years or so after I was in university. And so I took out the my old paints and I took out a couple of little small canvases and I started painting from the photos that I was taking on tour. And, and to my great shock, people wanted those paintings and they were asking to buy them. So I just kept doing it more and more. And it was kind of an ad hoc thing where I, I, you know, I might have some paintings on the merch table if I happened to have gotten around to it and people kept buying them. And then I started doing commissions where people would send me photos of things and I would paint them. And it was, it's really just a matter of practice. Like if I looked back at those earliest paintings that I was doing, they're just terrible. And I can't believe people bought them, but, uh, but I practice and practice and I, I get better and better. And, 
and now I've been doing it for about eight years. And I, I mostly do literal paintings of landscapes. So I paint directly from photos. But on my last album, my album Forest Fire, I wanted to do the cover art for the record. And I decided to experiment with abstract painting for the first time. And so the cover of that record is, is an abstract painting. And so when I made this new album, Hurricane Coming, I had the idea to do, to create an abstract painting inspired by every song on the album, as well as doing the cover art. And so that was a really ambitious undertaking that I wasn't sure if I would accomplish, but I managed to do it. And it was really exciting. It taught me all these new techniques in abstract painting, and it was just a really um, a really experimental and and an interesting experience. And I ended up with all of these paintings that I have now turned into postcards that are going to have download codes for all of those songs for the album. You can buy the album as a postcard collection. That's a really interesting uh, merch idea. And a lot of people are wondering, you know, selling albums these days, people don't, I mean, I have thousands of CDs, but I, I never play them anymore. So I don't, I don't buy as many as I used to. So like, how are we still going to support artists? So I think this is a really neat idea having these postcards that allow us to then listen to it digitally, but have a visual representation. So um, can you tell me a bit about how, how the music inspires those paintings or, or, or what the kind of process is that goes into it? Is it, is it based on how the songs make you feel or are there parts of the story that are woven into these paintings? What, what's that about? Yeah. So much like the songwriting process for this record, the painting process was a combination of intuition and experimentation, kind of the more abstract side and having a structure. So the way that I came up with those paintings was for every song, there was a, a part of the process that was just kind of intuitive and what kind of colors am I hearing and you know what am I feeling and how does that affect the brush strokes and all of that. But in, in order to just not have it go off the rails, I imposed structure on each painting by having that painting be inspired by an art or craft form that I felt was somehow related to the song. So the, for example, the first single from the album is called Lay Low Shadow. And the, uh, the painting that's associated with it is kind of liquidy and these colors blend into each other. And the, the art form that I was picturing when I was painting from that was a art form called alcohol inks, which is very liquidy and flowy and, you know, and uh, it creates this kind of watercolor effect. And so to have that kind of in the back of my mind as I'm creating an abstract painting helped to at least give me some direction. And so in the case of every song that I created a painting for, that was the process. There was, there was always this over, overarching art form or craft. So like, for example, one of them is quilting. One of them is... Um, visible mending they're all they're all forms of art that you create with your hands and I think what was really attracting me to that at the time was I was feeling so ungrounded when I was touring that when I finally came home and 
took some time off the road, and this was before the pandemic. I took some just solitary, quiet time to write this record and look inward and really, you know, be at home and be grounded. I think that process made me want to um, interact more with these these very hands-on art forms, these very like homemaking kind of art forms. And so those were the art forms that informed those paintings. Uh, the title of the album is Hurricane Coming. Is that kind of <laughs> indicative of a sense of doom and gloom in the, in the songs or, or what uh, sort of what, how does the album relate to that title? I suppose in, uh, in general. The, t- the title actually comes from the lyrics of one of the songs, a song called Echo, but it also kind of has that chaos in it and that feeling of something's coming, but right now there's this stillness, but kind of this tension and this unease. And there is a lot of that in my music and in me. So I think it's, it's, uh, it paints the picture that I'm trying to paint. But the album does have moments of darkness, but also moments of hope. And so it balances out, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the song that uh, you sent out first that that really drew me to the album was Lay Low Shadow. And it, it, it talks a bit about, well, you you tell me about the song, sort of where it comes from and, and, and what it means. Sure. That was actually the song that I was working on on that tour before I got sent home for the pandemic. It was the last song of the album. I was, it has, it wasn't done yet. I was kind of panicking and, and trying to finish it. And, and just in those months leading up to that tour, as I was trying to finish writing the album, I started feeling more and more anxious and I could feel that anxiety building in my body. And it's a feeling that I've had before to various degrees of severity in my life. And it's, it felt particularly strong at the time and unusually strong because I felt like it was something I used to have and then I got over it and now it's quote unquote fine. And so I, I and again, I, this is a, a time of, of mostly being at home alone and trying to write. And so I just started talking to it and having this dialogue with these anxious feelings I was having going like, why are you here? And what are we doing? <laughs> why is this happening? And, uh, and I came out of it kind of feeling like this is a part of me and this is something that's always going to be here. Uh, I might not notice it might be really, really low at the time and then kind of ramp up at other times, but I know what it feels like. And I know that, um, that it, it can be something that I can interact with in a way that isn't scary and that doesn't take over my life. And so I just kind of had that conversation and, and the song came out really as a dialogue with my own anxiety. It certainly uh, puts things into uh, <laughs> into a, a lot of words that I can certainly understand. Like it, it just, uh, it hits home in a lot of ways. You drove away my lovers and a lot of my good years. Every time I trip up, that's your cue to reappear. <laughs> like there's so much in this that I can, I can understand and, and feel and, and relate to. And, um, this, this show largely exists because I want to facilitate conversations around mental health and mental illness and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if you could, if, if you don't mind telling me a bit about how anxiety first came into your life and, and what that was like and what that struggle has been like in your life. Yeah. I think, I think if I really thought about it, it's, 
always been in my life. I, I grew up in an anxious household and I, I'm an anxious human. Um, but I think it, it's been different throughout my life. Like I remember a time in my life in my early 20s when I had absolutely debilitating performance anxiety. So when I would go to, to play a show or sing in, in university or with a choir or something, I just would be physically ill like every time I'd have to play a show. But I would love, I still loved music. And it was all very anticipatory anxiety. So it's always leading up to the moment, but in the moment I was fine. But I, I didn't like that feeling and I wanted to do something about it. But at the time I was acknowledging it as, you know, nervousness or just performance anxiety because of playing music. But what I didn't realize was it was really just anxiety in general and how I was living my life because I was really living my life in a very all or nothing kind of way, which I think is, is very destructive and, and not a pleasant way to live where, you know, I felt like everything I did, I had one shot at it. And if I didn't do it right, everything was going to crumble. So changing that mentality was a huge difference. But also, I think a lot of the time I felt very alone and uh, very much like I was the only one who could take care of me. So if anything happened, there would be no safety net. And it was all on me. And that's just a lot of pressure to put on myself. So, so it was a combination of changing my worldview about, you know, all or nothing. And also feeling as I got older and and also as I opened myself up more to people and I was more vulnerable and a bet and becoming a better communicator, all of those things helped ha provide me with a stronger support system of other people, which was a huge help. A lot of this comes with, uh, with experience and with time, you know, figuring all this stuff out. But when you're dealing with anxiety or whatever, it's, it can be pretty terrifying. Did you, did you have some difficult times where you, you know, were overwhelmed by it and didn't really know what was going on? And I had some times where my anxiety was very somatic and was causing me physical, debilitating physical symptoms where I was either just, I felt sick all the time or I was exhausted uh, or I just had like horrible stomach pains and, you know, and trying to find out what that was and I went to all these doctors and no one could help me. So that was really difficult. Um, but I'm, I'm a very hard worker. And so I will push myself, you know, even if I'm feeling terrible and that's what I did. I just pushed and pushed. So while other people might, you know, just stay in bed or not show up to something or, or, you know, uh, become, become uh, what people would say unreliable. Those are all legitimate <laughs> reactions to anxiety. I would just like push right through. And so I, I have a lot of anxiety about being on being late for things like I cannot be late for things. So I will be early. And at, there were times in my life where I would just make sure I was two hours early for everything, which to, to the outside world looks like somebody who's really organized and really on the ball and like <laughs> really determined. But for me, this was destructive to my life. So you were, you were the one who was always kind of putting on the mask and making it seem like everything was okay while you were secretly struggling with all this stuff. 
yeah, definitely. Like I certainly wasn't telling anyone and I certainly wasn't asking for help. Um, but I think it, again, it, it looked to the outside world like I was somebody who was just very organized and very hardworking when really I was somebody who was inventing every possible worst case scenario for every possible moment of my life and trying to plan for them. Yeah. It, it it's, but that's a dangerous way to, to live through right? Like that's why people yes. get into real trouble sometimes is because they, they can't acknowledge that there's a problem and they keep pushing through it and they don't, don't get the help they need. So, at, so at what point in time do you feel like it kind of wasn't such a problem anymore? Or what did you do to make that possible? <laughs> I went on tour. <laughs> um, I, you know, there was a point where I actually tried to get professional help where I went to my doctor and said, you know, I think I have anxiety. I would I really love to do something about it because I feel like it's getting in the way of my quality of life. And uh, the medical system is such that uh, instead of actually finding any help, I was just given a printout of a bunch of names I could call, you know, like <laughs> that, that the doctor didn't even know. Yeah, I've gotten that list. Which is not what you give someone who's like afraid to make phone calls. No. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so that didn't help. So um, what, what happened really was, I think it's, uh, what do they call it? They call it um, immersion therapy or like exposure therapy. When, if you were afraid of spiders, they would put you in a bathtub full of spiders so I was afraid of everything and I just threw myself on the road <laughs> where everything is chaotic and you can't control anything. And I really think that's what, it, what did it. I just threw myself into this situation that was terrifying and uncomfortable and very far away from home. And I just had to do it. And the more I did it, the easier it got. And the more I got to know myself, which is something that happens not only when you're driving a car alone for hours and hours, but also in the process of doing things like writing records. Um, I just, I started noticing more about myself and getting to know myself better. And in the process, it, it really helped in my relationships with people and in, in just my own openness. Cause I was a very closed off person for a long time and, and, and it's still a process, you know, and I'm, and still working on it, but I think that had a lot to do with it. So this song was was it difficult? Like you, you start. I know you talked about it initially. You you said that. Uh, so you started feeling some of these things coming back again. And was it was it hard to give this thing a voice and come up with a song like this, or or did that make it easier for you to understand what was going on and not let it overwhelm you anymore? Yeah, I would say definitely the latter because when I was writing this record, I was doing the writing in a very prescribed writing process where I would actually get up every day and the first thing in the morning I would write just stream of consciousness in my journal every single day. And that, and because I was so used to doing that already, because this was towards the end of the writing process, I was poised to be as uncensored and candid and open as possible in my writing. So I found that that just, just even putting it on paper was very cathartic and, and helpful and felt really good. Lay low, shadow, I know you don't go far. Lay low, shadow, I, I want to thank Shauna for chatting and for speaking openly about her struggle with anxiety. 
I can relate to so much of it, but especially this quote. She said, It looked to the outside world like I was just somebody who was very organized and very hardworking, when really I was somebody who was inventing every possible worst-case scenario for every possible moment of my life and trying to plan for them. That sounds a lot like me. And if that sounds a lot like you too, there are a lot of great resources that could help you deal with your anxiety. I have a bunch listed on my website at flywithyourshadow.com, or you can email me anytime to talk. Just reach out to flywithyourshadow at gmail.com. Anxiety, like other mental illnesses, can be scary and very isolating. These illnesses are often severely detrimental to a person's well-being and quality of life, and they can even be deadly. Luckily, there are a lot of treatments available, so these illnesses are manageable, and you can make life a lot better by getting help. I always recommend starting with a visit to a doctor, but if your doctor isn't being as helpful as you'd like, which sometimes happens, or as Shauna said, just gives you that list of strangers that you could call, you should probably find another doctor or reach out to an organization like the Canadian Mental Health Association at cmha.ca. Or here in Manitoba, we have a great organization called Anxiety Disorders Association of Manitoba, adam, A-D-A-M, dot M-B dot C-A. And there are many other similar organizations in most areas. Shana Caspi's album comes out on August 27th, but you can pre-order the CD or the postcards with their beautiful artwork at shaunacaspi.com or through Bandcamp. Again, I got a little leftover from my chat with Shauna that I'll share on the July 18th episode of my other show, Tell the Band to Go Home. I hope you'll check that one out at tellthebandtogohome.com. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, you may wish to sign up for the email notifications on the website at flywithyourshadow.com or follow the show on Facebook. I always really appreciate any help you can offer with spreading the word about the show. So if you feel so inclined, please tell a friend or someone you know about the show or share a link on social media. Personal recommendations can be really powerful and very helpful, and they would be greatly appreciated. I'm Jeff Robson, and I sincerely hope that you'll join me again on the next episode of Fly With Your Shadow.